But what it hasn't done is managed to make Mexico into a significant player on the global scale. And so it's a, he's a very inward looking politician. In fact, he's said explicitly on occasion that the best foreign policy is a good domestic policy. Since 2018, Andres Manuel López Obrador, commonly referred to as AMLO, has been in power as the president of Mexico. However, 2018 was not the beginning of his political career. In fact, he has been a figure in Mexican politics for the past three decades. From governor of his home province of Tabasco, to head of government of Mexico City and now as president of the country, he has risen through the ranks of Mexican politics. His approval rating has remained impressively high, even throughout Mexico's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we delve into AMLO's ideology, party, and what the results of Mexico's recent midterm elections means for the second half of his presidency. Joining us today to discuss these questions is Dr. Ryan Berg. Ryan C. Berg is a senior fellow in the Americas program and the head of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is also an adjunct professor at the Catholic University of America and visiting research fellow at the University of Oxford's Changing Character of War program. His research focuses on U.S. Latin America relations, authoritarian regimes, armed conflict, strategic competition, and trade and development issues. All right, Dr. Berg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. All right. So to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who is Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, also referred to as AMLO? And can you briefly explain to our listeners his background and how he rose to power in Mexican politics? Sure. So AMLO is um, not just the the president of Mexico, but a fascinating individual in his own right. Uh, he was born into a, a sort of provincial uh, middle class family in in the southern state of Mexico called Tabasco. Uh, he began his political career uh, with the the Mexican Institutional Revolutionary Party, which goes by the acronym of PRI, um, and became the Tabasco State Party president in 1983. PRI was the party that ruled Mexico until uh, really 2000 when Mexico became truly democratic and had free and fair elections. But AMLO before 2000 leaves the PRI, I think it was in 1983 that he leaves the PRI uh, for a a further left uh, party, a further center left party called the Party of the Democratic Revolution or the the PRD. Um, In the 90s, uh, he gains this reputation for organizing um, grassroots protests for his political capacities um, and and for his ability to highlight uh, environmental damage in his home state of Tabasco that was caused by uh, by Pemex, the state-owned oil company. Um, From 96 to 99, uh, he served as the National Party President of the PRD, the Party of the Democratic revolution. And then his most prominent political position was as the mayor of Mexico City from 2000 to 2006 um, under the slogan, for the good of all, the poor first. And that won him really widespread popularity. Um, he was a national political figure before he was uh, you know, a presidential candidate in 2018. In fact, that was his third time running for for president. Um, He got really close in 2006, ended up losing uh, by just a hair to Felipe Calderon. In fact, he alleged that there was a fraud in the election 
and uh, and he ha- he held a sort of faux inauguration in the uh, the central square of Mexico City, which is called the Zócalo, and uh, and and sort of inaugurated himself. And so to to this day, some of his followers will maintain that that election was was stolen from him. But in 2018, he was duly elected uh, president of of Mexico uh, in a landslide victory because he was the sort of the man of the moment. Uh, but prior to that, he had been on the political scene for for, for many years. Um, so you've mentioned that AMLO has belonged to a few different parties in his political time, but at the moment, he belongs to the party Morena. So can you explain a little bit the ideology of his current party, Morena, and how this relatively new party rose to the power it has today? Sure. So I, you know, I mentioned um, how AMLO moved from the PRI or the PRI to the PRD, uh, and now he's a member of of Morena, and so he he became disenchanted as well with the with the PRD and its support for the previous president uh, Enrique Peña Nieto and his economic initiatives uh, specifically. Uh, Peña Nieto himself was not a member of the PRD; he was a member of the PRI. Uh, but the PRD supported him in some of his economic initiatives, namely some of the reforms. Um, uh, in, a, in a direction, in a neoliberal direction with which AMLO disagreed. And so he, he famously moved away from the PRD, uh, moved to the, the Morena Party, which is the acronym for the National Regeneration Movement. But also in Spanish, the word Morena uh, means brown. And so um, the, the acronym uh, ad- addresses the fact that, that historically speaking, there have been racial hierarchies within Mexico and that AMLO himself considers himself to be a sort of champion for uh, for indigenous rights, uh, uh, for the rights of, of racial and ethnic minorities, etc. And so Morena has this sort of double meaning uh, as 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 brown um, as the word in Spanish, and also as the acronym for the National Regeneration Movement. Uh, Morena itself is a is a left wing political party that uh, ostensibly seeks to return uh, what it says is the, the dignity to the government for the, the people of, of Mexico. Um, the main contention from AMLO is that at some point along the way, Mexico took the wrong turn. Mexico moved into the orbit of, of the, the, the neoliberal economic consensus that was engulfing the world in the 1990s um, and it did so by doing things like joining NAFTA and integrating itself with uh, with the trade and economic systems and structures of, of great powers. Um, and, and that was the wrong turn for Mexico because it sort of ensnared Mexico into some of these uh, greater institutions and, and economic practices, as well as made it dependent upon a certain style uh, of economic development, which in, in, in AMLO's opinion makes Mexico a place of, of significant inequality and injustice. Um, but th- th- this rhetoric was very popular um, among certain segments of, of the political elite. And in a place like Mexico, where party identity is not necessarily very firm, you had a lot of politicians moving from their respective parties uh, to, to Morena. Right. And one of the most peculiar things about the 2018 Mexican elections um, was the complete collapse of the mainstream parties that had dominated Mexico for over 80 years. And so why did this collapse happen? 
Right. It was a sweeping victory for Morena. We not only saw um, a very unpopular president in Enrique Peña Nieto as a member of the PRI going out of office. You know, the PRI was was absolutely decimate, decimated. Many folks from PRD moved over to, to Morena. Uh, and the PAN, which is the acronym for another major uh, opposition party, which had furnished two presidents previously, uh, Vicente Fox and uh, Felipe Calderón, uh, they were also uh, quite badly defeated. And I think the, the idea here was just an exhaustion with, um, with political parties that uh, were, were in the mainstream, but not necessarily delivering for the Mexican people. There were, of course, uh, issues of, of violence and insecurity that, were, uh, that are perpetual within Mexican politics. There was the issue of, of economic growth, uh, the, the future of Mexico on the global stage, all sorts of questions that I think voters felt that uh, mainstream opposition parties didn't really have good answers to. And so there was a significant populist undertone to uh, AMLO's rhetoric and to his, to his campaign that was anti-establishment, it was anti-system, even though he's been on the scene for many, many years, as I mentioned. Uh, that appealed to to the Mexican people, and and primarily it was an appeal on the basis of of this injustice and inequality, as well as corruption. Um, I think a major appeal of the the AMLO presidency was the fact that AMLO himself is someone who is very austere, uh, and goes out of his way to show that he is not a corrupt individual. In fact, he flies uh, coach class or e economy class uh, on normal uh, civilian flights. So he chats with everyday Mexicans when he's traveling around the country. He's, he's trying to sell the presidential airplane. He refuses to live in the, in the presidential palace, which has been opened up for the first time um, to, the, to the general public, a, a palace that's called Los Pinos. It had been long closed to average everyday Mexicans. He drives to work in his old white Volkswagen uh, Jetta. And so these, these kinds of things are not something that Mexicans saw from their presidents uh, in, in the past. And I think this was a major appeal for many of them uh, in, in electing an AMLO government was that he would be an anti-corruption, anti-establishment, personally virtuous uh, president of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And like you said, when AMLO was first elected, he won with a sweeping victory, and you know he's rel he he retained a relatively high national approval rating. Um, like you said, because he's very austere, his anti-corruption message is uh, something that a lot of Mexican public haven't seen before. But that being said, what do Mexicans generally think about AMLO today, and has it changed significantly since 2018? and especially over the course of the pandemic? Well, that's a great question. One of the things that's been most puzzling to many of us who watch Mexico is just how firm his approval ratings have been, despite the fact that Mexico has not performed that well under his watch. And when I say hasn't performed that well, I mean in a number of facets. Um, in the economic department, both pre and during the pandemic, uh, it has not performed very well during the pandemic at all, which is to say that Mexico has had a lot of mortality. It's had trouble acquiring vaccines. Um, it has had a questionable epidemiological strategy for how it gets the vaccines uh, into people's arms, which is to say it's prioritizing 
rural places, which tend to look more like AMLO supporting places, as opposed to urban spaces where you would expect there to be the greatest risk for transmission of a, uh, of, of a deadly airborne virus. Uh, so there's all sorts of questions like that. Security is another one of these areas where AMLO came into office with really no plan for how to quell the country's persistent violence. In 2018, there were 35,000 homicides. That's more than the United States with less than half the population. So there are all these lingering questions, and yet the approval rating for the Lopez Obrador administration seems to be always hovering around 60% or higher. So he's one of the most popular presidents uh, in the Americas. In fact, the only president who comes to mind who's more popular than AMLO is Nayib Bukele in El Salvador. Um, but the, the, the message here has been that AMLO is very consistent and having a solid approval rating that seems to be uh, not very dependent exactly on the performance of his country, but more on who he is as an individual and what Mexicans feel like he represents. And I kind of want to follow up on that and what you were talking about earlier in just describing AMLO. Um, to what extent is he a, a populist leader? And some people have described it as like plebeian populism or kind of a new brand of that. So I'm just curious, um, to what extent does he fall into that category of populism? Well, he certainly, I like to think of populism as um, the, there are many definitions of populism. And, and as a political scientist, I think the one that's most convincing is that which juxtaposes uh, the opinions of the elite against the opinions of the populace. And the opinions of the elite are generally ascribed uh, a, a sort of negative virtue or a vice. And the opinions of the populace are generally taken as virtuous, as the ones we ought to be pursuing. And that elites, um, in general, as a category of people, very rarely, if ever, have in mind the best interest of the populace. And from that, the populace. And from that perspective, AMLO is a consummate populist because he plays that rhetoric and and that type of of governing extremely well. Um, all of his rhetoric is about how the, the, the current Mexican situation, um, uh, the country's direction prior to his assuming the presidency was all on the wrong path because of the, uh, the, the privileges of the elite, how they had um, uh, devoured the country in the past, made it into their own sort of playground from which they had gotten wealthy and excluded a large number of Mexicans. He even has a, a sort of derogatory term that he describes uh, elite Mexicans as, or uh, children of, of elite Mexicans. He calls them fifis, which is, a, 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 again, a derogative way to refer to someone who grew up with a, a, a privileged background. Uh, and against that, he juxtaposes uh, his platform, uh, which is always on the side of, of the pueblo. It's always on the side of the people. Um, and, and draws inspiration from what their priorities should be, from what their opinions are. Uh, and he's, he's managed to play those cleavages in Mexican society very, very well. And so he is a populist, in my opinion, uh, in his rhetoric and in his approach to governing. But if you actually look at his policies, 
uh, they're less populist than other presidents in the region. So one thing that's really surprised us about AMLO is that he is a very fiscally conservative president. Um, in fact, he's been so fiscally conservative that in the response to COVID-19, his fiscal policy has done a lot of damage to Mexican businesses and entrepreneurs. Uh, something like a million businesses have closed during small businesses and medium-sized enterprises in Mexico during, during the pandemic, because according to the IMF, as a percentage of its GDP, Mexico has spent the least on economic recovery and maintaining employment and on helping people get by during COVID-19 as a percentage of GDP. The only country that spent less as that percentage of GDP is the Bahamas. And so Mexico is in, in sort of bad company there when it, or in a bad category there when it comes to um, uh, pandemic economic support and response. And, and that would specifically, in my mind, go against um, a, a populist expansion of, of, of fiscal policy that you would expect to see during a, an economic downturn like this. Great. So that leads us perfectly to kind of our transition into talking more about AMLO's policies um, after our conversation about his rhetoric and his politics. So beyond the economic policies, what has Mexico looked like under AMLO and what has and hasn't changed as a result of his and his party's policies? Right. So I think um, first and foremost, AMLO has uh, increased the state's role in, uh, in Mexico's economy, and generally speaking, has made it uh, less connected globally or less integrated uh, globally. And I think that comes from um, AMLO himself and the fact that he is very inward looking. If you observe Mexican politics, you will see um, Lopez Obrador is traveling constantly, but he's not traveling outside of Mexico. The only time he's done that as president was to come one time to Washington to have that press conference with Trump. Other than that, he's traveling domestically in coach class as always within Mexico. And what looks to be happening to, to many analysts, including me, is that there's like a constant campaign in Mexico, AMLO doing rallies, AMLO making local visits, AMLO uh, reaching out to, to local populations and making them feel connected with the Mexican presidency in a way that plays very well to his, uh, to, to his base and to, to average everyday Mexicans. But what it hasn't done is managed to make Mexico into a significant player on the global scale. And so it's a, he's a very inward looking politician. In fact, he's said explicitly on occasion that the best foreign policy is a good domestic policy. Um, and so he has focused a large amount of his energies on domestic politics, um, mainly through his program, which he calls the fourth transformation of Mexico, La Cuarta Transformación. And what he means by that is the final uh, transformation which he thinks needs to happen in Mexico, which is the separation, the permanent separation between political and economic power in the country. So he wants to go after things like corruption, he wants to go after uh, uh, cronyism. He wants to remake the economy in a way that's more domestically focused and self-sufficient as opposed to economically integrated and dependent upon trade. And so since 2018, Morena has introduced 29 constitutional amendments, 
almost 300 legislative changes. This is a very sweeping and ambitious program that is to say this fourth transformation. Um, and it's focused on all sorts of things. It's focused on uh, Mexico's domestic energy consumption, where it comes from. Uh, it's focused on, uh, on education, uh, rolling back some of the reforms of the previous government in, in both areas, in both the energy space and the education space. Uh, it's focused relatively little on security and the security dynamics in the country and trying to quell the, the, the persistent violence and cut into some of the territorial control um, of, of the cartels. And to some of his biggest critics, the fourth transformation has created um, uh, an, an atmosphere in which the president is going about weakening Mexico's democratic institutions, uh, contributing to a diminution of, of private investment in the country Mexico, for example, has fallen out of, of, of uh, multiple rankings of the top 25 global destinations for foreign and direct investment, FDI, when previously it was, it was in the top FDI lists for a number of years straight. Um, uh, he's contravening Mexican commitments on climate change, and so that's uh, caught the or captured the attention of, of the Biden administration in, uh, in, in Washington. Um, and, and most recently, he's threatened to eliminate some of the institutions that were previously established in Mexico, dedicated to enforcing freedom of information, and antitrust efforts. Um, he's done a number of things that actually run afoul of USMCA as well. And so there are storm clouds brewing in Mexico on a number of fronts with this fourth transformation project. So you mentioned that a big part of AMLO's foreign policy or lack thereof is that, quote unquote, the best foreign policy is domestic policy. But of the foreign policy that Mexico has exerted during AMLO's tenure as president, um, how have AMLO's foreign policy goes, goals changed during the Trump, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration if there has been a shift? And what does that look like? That's a great question. So Again, comparatively, AMLO is far less far less focused on foreign policy than he is domestic policy, but he still is pragmatic enough to know that having a good working relationship with the United States is key for Mexico. He can't completely reverse uh, the previous trends of, of past decades, which is a, a headlong rush into uh, integration with the United States. Um, and so his key policy agenda for both Trump and the Biden administrations was to keep a working, um, cordial relationship with the United States. But what that looks like has changed. So in the Trump administration, I think what we saw in many cases was a president less willing to push back because he was afraid of the potential consequences of what the Trump administration might do. Um, namely put tariffs on Mexico, uh, namely reduce support for a development and assistance programs, uh, cut quotas on a number of significant exports from Mexico, um, reduce security cooperation, which is always key for, for, for Mexico, the, the way that we collaborate and cooperate bilaterally through the Merida Initiative. The Trump administration was much more willing to uh, to to go there, so to speak, in terms of some of its um, some of its inducements and, uh, and 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 the way in which it was willing to twist his arm. And so, I think 
that manifested itself in a much more um, deferential AMLO vis-a-vis the United States than what you see now. What you see now is an AMLO who's far more willing to push back against the United States. He's far more willing to uh, to say no, to go uh, stri- strictly against what he knows are U.S. interests. And I'll just give one example, which is um, in the security cooperation space, the United States in uh, late in the Trump administration, so October 2020, captured a, a high-level Mexican general who was on a family visit to Los Angeles. And so they, they, they captured him at LAX. They later informed the Mexican government that they had uh, arrested him on, on suspected uh, cooperation with um, the, eight, the shadowy H2 cartel in, in Mexico. And uh, that blindsided the, the, the Mexican government. They were, they were uh, very upset about the fact that this, um, this took place without their knowledge, it took place without any sort of heads up. It was a very carefully crafted three or four year um, uh, case that the DEA carefully made through uh, assiduously documented evidence. Um, and what happened in the end was that the, the administration released uh, this this general, um, Cienfuegos is his name, General Cienfuegos, and uh, extradited him to Mexico. They responded to the extradition request of the Mexican government under AMLO. Now, what AMLO did was say that the Mexican government was going to undertake its own investigation. It was going to consider the evidence that the DEA had assembled, and it was going to prosecute Cienfuegos domestically if it was warranted. Well, the investigation uh, was really more of a charade. It only took about 35 or 40 days to complete. Nobody actually thinks it was a complete um, uh, and full hearing of the evidence. Um, And not only did Cienfuegos, uh, not only does he roam free uh, in Mexico now, but also uh, the Mexican president accused the United States government of not only interfering in Mexico's sovereignty, but fabricating the case against um, one of the top generals in the Mexican army. And so that's a a very tangible incidence of where uh, uh, the the United States government has an interest uh, in Mexico. Mexico has an interest in partnering with the United States and a different response has taken place under the current administration than what I think would have taken place um, had Trump won re-election and had we seen uh, a continuation of Trump uh, in the White House uh, conducting U.S.-Mexican bilateral relations. And not only did AMLO push back and, and say that the United States fabricated evidence, but he also pushed for the passage of a law through, through Mexico's Congress that limited security cooperation with the United States, made it almost impossible for the DEA to have meetings with informants around the country to collect evidence, which by the way is usually uh, shared with with Mexican intelligence officials and with Mexican police in their efforts to combat corruption and and criminal activity. Nevertheless, he circumscribed the ability of the DEA to perform those functions out of the embassy in in Mexico City and in uh, other consulates around the country. And so it was really some thank you from uh, from AMLO for complying to his request to extradite General Cienfuegos. And so that's just a very tangible example of 
how he's pushing back to assert himself vis-a-vis the United States in the new administration and how he's less afraid uh, of doing so under the current circumstances. Mm -hmm. Another foreign policy issue, Mexican foreign policy issue that involves the United States is obviously immigration. Vice President Kamala Harris uh, met with AMLO um, last month. She also visited Guatemala. So what has AMLO's approach to um, addressing immigration to the United States at the American southern border, Mexican northern border? How has his approach, what has his approach been in the last, uh, since his term began? And do you see any, um, what are some of the, his options as he deals with, you know, demands from the United American government and both the, you know, the situation on the ground inside Mexico? Again, here, I think this is a, a, another place where you can see a, a, a divergence in, in approaches based on the administration in Washington. Previously, uh, the Lopez Obrador administration was um, cooperating with the United States under the Trump administration. But again, it was after a moment in time where the United States threatened tariffs on Mexican exports. Um, and what what the the architecture, let's call it, that was erected to to deal with massive flows of migrants to the southern border under the Trump administration is just different than what you see under the Biden administration. But AMLO was nevertheless willing to to go with this architecture um, under the Trump administration because of a, a, a fear of what could happen if, if he said no. And so under his leadership, we saw um, the so-called wait in Mexico policy, um, uh, the, the policy which said that uh, migrants should wait on the Mexican side of the border after having their case scheduled uh, in the United States so that there wasn't any longer a sort of catch and release policy. Um, and, and we wouldn't have any more cases where People didn't show up to their immigration hearings, which would often take place years after they had been apprehended by Border Patrol. Um, there were um, uh, the, there were troops that Mexico um, uh, uh, deployed on the southern border with uh, with Guatemala to try to stop caravans from coming up from the Northern Triangle in the first place. That as well was something that the Trump administration negotiated. And the last thing that I would highlight that they negotiated was the so-called safe third country agreements with, um, with Mexico and with uh, Mexico's neighbors to the south, the Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, which is to say that um, because migrants had to pass through Mexico on their way to the United States, they were therefore to uh, apply for asylum in Mexico first rather than the United States. And the United States was, uh, w- was within its right to remove migrants who had come to the southern border back to their countries in the Northern Triangle uh, if they weren't okay with um, applying for asylum in, uh, in Mexico. That's hence the so-called safe country uh, agreements. Um, and so Mexico was, was an important part of curtailing the flow of migrants to the southern border uh, in in the Trump administration, and they continue to be an important part of that uh, in the the Biden administration. But I do see certain differences in posture 
uh, namely that the, the AMLO administration now is willing to push back a little bit on the migrant protection protocols, which was the formal name given to the Wade in Mexico program. Uh, they're willing to push back on that. The Biden folks have decided that they're going to dismantle, uh, for the most part, that policy. Um, they've also deployed uh, uh, members of the Mexican National Guard to the southern border to try to curtail the flow, but maybe it's not as vigorous as it was under the Trump administration. Um, and certainly those safe third country agreements with the three countries in the Northern Triangle are no longer operative um, in the same way that they were under the Trump administration. And in addition, the last thing that I'll mention is I think that you see the Biden administration, the AMLO administration rather, pushing back a little bit on some of these asks from the United States in asking what they can get in return, not just saying what penalty are we avoiding or what are what, what, what is the threat that we're currently under? Is it tariffs? Is it something else? But instead, they're pressing the Biden administration um, for certain things in return. And so when we saw the last big deployment to the southern border of the Mexican National Guard, we also saw the United States under the Biden administration loaning about two, billion, uh, two uh, uh, million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine to Mexico uh, in return for, for that deployment. And so there's a little bit more pushback under the current administration uh, in Washington from, from AMLO and, and his policy advisors in Mexico. On June 6th, 2021, last month, Mexico held its midterm elections. What were the results? And what are the implications for the Morena party who, you know, the president intended the elections to give him a congressional supermajority, this did not happen. Why did that happen? And what does that mean for the rest of AMLO's term? Right. So there is a split in the results. Um, you have a completely different picture as to how Morena performed in Mexico on the federal and on the state level. So first, let's discuss the federal level. As you mentioned, um, Mexico failed to, uh, AMLO rather, failed to... Um, to achieve his desired supermajority within his electoral coalition. And what that means is that um, some of the very ambitious projects that he has um, under his fourth transformation uh, will need to be completed before the end of his current term. In Mexico, there's a, there's a, a single term limit on the Mexican presidency it lasts for six years, and it's called the sexenio, right? Six-year term, that's it. You don't get anything else. Many had suspected that AMLO would seek to lift term limits on the presidency had he won a supermajority in, uh, in, in, the, in the federal Congress. Because if you have ambitions to be mentioned in the same sentence of Mexican history as Benito Juarez, Lázaro Cárdenas, other people who have fought in the Mexican Revolution, created the Mexican state, uh, uh, designed the modern Mexican economy. If you want to be in the same sentence as some of those people, you might need more than six years governing to make your lasting legacy. And so that was the basic idea behind many people suspecting that lifting term limits was one of the things that AMLO wanted to do. But without a supermajority in the Congress, he probably won't be able to do that. And so what he's looking at is about three and a half years left in his term. 
And so what does he do uh, with that, with the fact that Morena still has a majority, but not a super majority? Okay, so that's one of the biggest um, uh, that's one of the biggest consequences of the elections on the federal level. On the state level, there's a different story. There's there's more of a tale to be told than just the federal level elections, because these were the largest elections in Mexican history, both in terms of um, uh, of, of the the size of, of the vote, but also the number of seats that were up for election. It was federal seats, it was state seats, it was state legislatures, and it was a number of governorships. Um, on the state level, Morena received uh, resounding support um, and controls now 17 of the 32 states um, in Mexico, which was an increase from the six that it controlled after AMLO's sweeping federal victory in 2008. So Morena, his party has gone from six to 17 on the, on the state level. Um, and it also controls, in addition to a number of important uh, governorships, uh, a number of state legislatures, um, state legislatures where um, it had, hadn't been popular in the past. So important northern states like Baja California, Sonora, Coahuila, uh, indicating that it has grown in areas where it didn't have a, a presence previously in 2018. And on the local level in Mexico City, where uh, Mexico City and Mexican politics is a lot of times used as a bellwether for broader national trends, political trends within Mexico. Um, Morena suffered losses. It only received seven, it only won seven of the 16 districts, and previously it had 11 of the 16 districts. And so you have a, a, a story with multiple layers, depending upon how many layers of the onion, so to speak, that you that you peel back. Um, there's the federal level story, there's the state level story, and then there's the local level story in some of the places, mainly urban places, where um, you you often have these urban places serving as sort of proxies for broader political trends within within Mexico. Um, Nationally, the party maintain, it continues to be less popular than AMLO himself. Um, and so not only is there the question of what does he make of the remaining three and a half-ish years of his term, but how does AMLO make Morena into a political movement that can outlast him as a person? And there are questions that are now coming into consideration because this as, as we all tend to do as political analysts, we tend to look to who is, who's, the, who's the heir apparent uh, after midterm elections. These are the questions that we start asking sometimes. And, and people are starting to ask these questions in Mexico. Who succeeds um, AMLO as the, the, the standard bearer of, of the Morena party? And it's, it's unclear as of right now who the best person is to carry that torch forward. And, and quite simply, it's because the party itself is less popular than the individual currently leading it. So I want to ask a question about um, the midterm election, specifically the reports of widespread political violence with 89 politicians murdered in total. Um, AMLO dismissed these murders as quote unquote sensationalized, 
Was this violence expected by the government and was it unusual during the election period? So the answer is no. Um, we often see uh, violence during uh, Mexican elections. This is not, it, it, it's certainly not rare to see um, assassinations and threats, uh, murders of, of politicians, especially those um, unfavored by criminal organizations in Mexico and those who talk uh, tough on criminal organizations or they talk about partnering with the United States, or they explicitly mention the policy of extradition of criminals to the United States. These are usually things that get um, on the radar of, of criminal cartels in, in Mexico. And so that there is violence during Mexico's uh, elections quite often, that's not new. Um, that there were 89 politicians murdered, uh, 25 of whom were Morena, Morena uh, party officials, uh, I think that is uh, something we, we haven't seen in the past. The, the number 89 is, is quite shocking. Um, and the number of incidents of political violence that were reported throughout the campaigning season uh, was astronomical. Um, and when I say incidents, it could be threats. Um, it could be, it could be um, any, any number of uh, of, of, of things, threats to physical integrity, threats to, uh, threats to undermine the ballot box, threats to, to, um, to, to someone's family as a sort of collateral damage. Um, it's, it's a number of, of things, but most electoral violence in Mexico tends to occur at the municipal level where uh, criminal groups exert a lot of pressure and a lot of influence uh, in the the hope that they can influence the outcome of the elections and thereby secure more control over drug trafficking and other criminal enterprises. Um, and this fits within a broader framework of a very weak response by the Mexican government to uh, persistent insecurity and violence in Mexico. When, when AMLO ran in 2018, one of the things that he wanted to, to highlight very prominently in his campaign was a different approach to security, um, a, an approach that was, as he described it, hugs, not bullets. So an approach that was specifically de-conflicting um, the, the security approach that he, had, he thinks that other uh, governments previous to him had taken to the cartel problem wasn't going to focus very much on the criminal contestation element of things, on the controlling of territories, on, on confronting criminal groups and trying to roll them back, on disrupting their operations, preventing their money laundering. But instead, it was going to focus on using economic development as a way and social programs as a way of uh, preventing criminal recruitment. Uh, and the recruitment of, of Mexican youth into gangs and, and cartels. Uh, and that has, even to this day, been his uh, continued rhetoric on how best to fight security uh, in the country. And so it's no surprise to me that we saw 89 politicians murdered in, in these elections, many, many more reporting incidents of, of political violence, uh, because we are in a, a moment in Mexico where there is significant turmoil within the criminal underworld. 
Um, a lot of advances have been made on the part of criminal groups during COVID-19 to be able to win the hearts and minds of individuals for whom they were there when they needed it most. Um, and it wouldn't at all be a surprise to me if we saw that 35,000 homicide figure that I mentioned previously in this podcast in 2019, if we saw that crep creep up in 2021, already we've seen an average of 97 murders a day in 2021. So we're on, we're on pace for uh, an eclipsing of that record, which was set in 2019. And so just to briefly wrap us up for this episode, um, AMLO has three more years left in his term after these elections. So what do these election results hint at for the future of Mexico's political landscape, as well as AMLO's presidency? That's a good question. So many of us will be looking very closely to see um, how AMLO navigates this new environment where he uh, he has to negotiate. He has to compromise more than he has in the past with opposition parties to be able to pass laws and put constitutional reforms within reach. Um, something that has already been done uh, something like 17 times. So he, he needs to recalibrate um, under his last three years his strategy for congressional relations and for getting legislation passed because the lack of two-thirds majority will limit his chances of enshrining any of the major changes he's making under this fourth transformation program um, and making them more permanent, making them more permanent than, uh, say, an executive order uh, or a piece of legislation that could uh, easily be reversed by his successor. Um, it also curbs the ability, in my opinion, to uh, continue uh, damaging some of Mexico's democratic institutions. Um, it, it significantly calls into question um, his efforts to undermine, for example, those institutions I mentioned before that aim at transparency and anti-corruption um, because uh, there are simply more voices um, op opposing these kinds of moves than, than there were um, uh, before. Now, the fact that Morena has lost Mexico City as one of those bellwethers for broader political trends could indicate that um, Morena has serious uh, problems in the future, um, becoming a, a viable political movement in elections well beyond ones where AMLO is, is on the ticket. Um, again, they still have a lot of control at the federal level. They still control quite a few local uh, or state level legislatures and governorships. But there are questions about the long term viability of Morena as a political movement beyond this, um, uh, beyond AMLO as a political figure, because he tends to suck all the oxygen um, in, in the room and, and tends to be the discussion. Uh, but now folks are starting to discuss what comes after him, because it's clear that there is an end at some point, at least constitutionally speaking there should be an end. And it's unlikely he's going to be able to lift term limits. And so the question of, of successor uh, has really come into view now in a way that it wasn't before the, the midterm uh, elections. And the last thing is, um, uh, you know, we could see an erosion in his popularity over time um, in a way that we haven't seen thus far as um, Mexicans start to, uh, to, to realize that his persona and, and what he represents is not enough. 
uh, they would like to start seeing results. And they're not seeing good results and good trends on, on the COVID front. And they're not seeing uh, results on the economic recovery front. They're not seeing Mexico take advantage of this uh, great nearshoring uh, opportunity that it has in, in the wake of, of COVID-19 and the extrication of supply chains from China. All sorts of things could limit his enduring popularity in a way that puts at risk the, the mandate uh, of the fourth transformation. All right, Dr. Berg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been such a wonderful discussion. Thank you all very much for having me. And thank you very much for highlighting the important political trends going on in Mexico right now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.